God. Today we're going to continue on in the book of Colossians, and we're going to finish the end of chapter 1. I see here that I don't have a clicker, and so I'm going to be depending on you up there to take care of this for me as we go. Um, as we get started, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in a word of prayer. But before we do that, I do want to ask you to come alongside all of our youth who normally, customarily in youth service, turn down and power down their phones so that they're not a distraction to their time of listening to the preaching of God's word. And so if you will come alongside our youth, power down your phones, all of the verses from today are going to be on the screen. And so you don't need to have an electronic Bible. All you need is a pen, open your soft hearts, and if you want to take notes, you're welcome to, and that's in your bulletin. So with that, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, and we thank you, Lord, that truly Christ is the best. He's not just only the best for a season. He's not only the best thing in the Bible, but he is truly the best. That was what the Apostle Paul believed, and that was the message that he preached. But Lord, he did not preach those things or proclaim those things because of wishful thinking or because it seemed like the popular message of the time. He preached that message which was countercultural and which made his life very difficult and dangerous to continue because it was true. Because Christ, the risen Savior, appeared to him, gave him a mission, gave him a message, and gave him a motivation to make disciples of all nations, for which then we are here on the receiving end 2,000 years later to be able to continue to remember that Christ is the best. So I pray, Lord, that you would use today to show us again the beauty of our risen Savior and the truth of the gospel. But I pray, Father, that today, above and beyond head knowledge or maybe Bible verses or Sunday school lessons that we have received over the years, Father, that you would allow what we know to be true from your word to impact how we choose to live, especially how we endeavor to persevere in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we need you. And because Christ is best, you can use us. But also because Christ is best, he is worthy of our lives. So point us to this message of salvation, but also point us to this message of hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today's title is Christ in You, the Hope of Glory, which you will find is a phrase taken from the center of the passage today. I love this phrase, and we're going to take the time to unpack it as we go. Next slide, please. There's going to be three points I'm going to have us look at first. We're going to see how this passage breaks down into showing us what is Paul's ministry in the first two verses, and then going deeper, his message, and then finally, we're going to see his motivation. There is something that in his ministry, through his message, that he is aiming to achieve. So we will see that in the pairings of verses as we go. At the end, though, of the message, I hope to be able to bring us back, not only, again, to a biblical center in terms of information, but I hope that we would see that this information and this teaching and this truth is enveloped in the life that Paul has lived and at the time of writing is endeavoring to live still. And this is where it impacts us because we are all aiming to live for something. We all strive for purpose and significance, regardless of what life stage we are in. 
There's always something that has us waking up the next day thinking, you know what, my life should go more in this direction versus that one. And maybe it's a little vague, maybe it's a little fuzzy, maybe it's very close and we feel like we're running out of time, but whatever it is, how we live is wrapped around and enveloped by the center of our purpose of what we believe to be true and what we are aiming for. And Paul is in the middle right now as he's writing this letter of living a very difficult life. And so we don't want to just see his life and think, oh, wow, let my life be more difficult without the center. But we also have to realize the reason why Paul is choosing to suffer for Christ in the setting that he is in under house arrest is because there is a transcendent and eternal center for which his life has been surrendered to but also one for which God has called him personally and one for which he calls us who are followers of Jesus to embrace as well. So while our lives may span the spectrum of a variety of differences, the center that Paul lived for is the center for us who are in Christ that we are called to live for as well. So let's go ahead and look at the first two verses where we're able to see Paul's ministry, which is to make the word known. I'll go ahead and read verse 24 and 25. Now I, who is the Apostle Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. So just as a recap of the situation here with Paul, he is writing a letter to the church in Colossae. These are Christians that know him, but he may not know them as well. The reason why is because he didn't go in person to start that church, but there was a man named Epaphras who came from Colossae to visit Paul in Ephesus while he was doing ministry there and preaching the gospel. And Epaphras was one to Christ, and then he went back to his hometown and preached the gospel and made disciples, and now a church is there. But what Paul did know about was an ongoing issue and situation in the city of Colossae, where there were teachers coming around the church telling them, hey, the gospel is great, Jesus crucified, buried, risen, that is great, but you need more than that. You need to know this gospel, but you also need extra knowledge. You need bonus information. You need more spirituality to add on to what Christ has done on behalf of sinners. And so Paul's really upset about this. But upset not in a way of just wanting to, like, you know, vent and rant. He's upset because he knows that there is the truth anchored in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And there's power that changes lives because what Christ has done has brought about eternal change and transformation to all those who put their faith in him. So he did not want the people of Colossae, whom he did not know personally, but he loved because they are co-laborers in the gospel with him, to go down the wrong path. And so then he writes this letter in response now, he is in house arrest right now. This letter most likely was written after 
the stories of Acts, when he is awaiting to go to Rome, so he is arrested and he is just waiting in prison in some capacity. So he's suffering. He doesn't have freedom, although people can come to him. He's just not able to be in places and talk to people the way that he used to be able to freely. On top of that, it is not the most desirable of situations when you are locked up. So he is definitely suffering. But the core of who he is as someone that Christ has called personally to make disciples, especially to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that remains. That burns, and that leads him to continue to write and to preach and to share. You see in verse 24 something really interesting, that he points out that he is suffering. He doesn't make light of it. He doesn't try to be a a hero and say, oh, life is great when it's not. He says that he is suffering, but the fact that he is suffering doesn't upset him. A lot of times when we're suffering, the first thing that gets to us, and I'll start with me, is, oh man, woe is me. Why is this horrible thing happening to me? Why did this conflict come on my lap? Why did this situation present itself at this extremely inopportune time? I don't want to deal with this. Life would be much better without this. But that was not Paul's response. In fact, he's a little bit strange about this. Not only was he expecting suffering, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Just for fun? No, it's because this is all related to his expectations as a follower of Jesus. We only have to think as far as to Matthew 16, when Jesus was addressing his disciples, telling them this, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Pursue a path of suffering. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Paul completely expected to go through a difficult life, which maybe for some of us, we need to actually begin there. And we'll come back to that at the end of this message. What does it mean to be confronted with the fact that our lives aren't supposed to be easy? But more than that is actually Paul's attitude towards his suffering. He's rejoicing in the suffering because of what the suffering accomplishes. If you see the end of verse 24, the ESV says it in this way, for in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I was so confused by that. I was confused. I was thinking, wait, does, he mean, does it mean that he has to put in more suffering for the church? Has Christ done everything? I'm really confused by the verbiage of what Paul says. Is he taking the place of some kind of pain that people need to endure for their sake in a redemptive way or in some kind of a significant way? Well, that's where it helps sometimes to cross-reference other versions. And so I want to give you a couple that I think helps here. So in the Christian Standard Bible, this is how they translate it. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. So he is also participating in his life what is expected for the church. The New Living Translation says it this way, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. In other words, 
even though he is under house arrest, he is in prison, the suffering that he is going through allows him to be further connected and also on the same journey with other followers of Christ, namely the church in Colossae. That even though he's not able to be with them, through his suffering, he identifies with them. And he is glad to do so. That they would know that it is not high and mighty Apostle Paul writing from an ivory tower all these deep theological truths about how they need to persevere and be faithful in the midst of heresy and false teaching and persecution, but he is suffering with them. He is walking with them. He is not only teaching them, he is their co-laborers, even with distance and even with separation. He is glad because they are his people in Christ. And as he suffers, there's a connection that is strengthened that all the people of God should have and expect and experience because of following Jesus. We remember this in Acts 9 when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. What was Paul doing? He got permission from the rabbis to go and hunt down Christians. So this was the guy that was on one end, like kind of the bad end of causing suffering and persecution for followers of Jesus. He was on that side, and he was so zealous and ambitious. He gets extra bonus permission to take a journey just to hunt down followers of Jesus and then give them a hard time. That's when Jesus meets him on the road. And we talk about this, by the way, a little bit during baptism membership class, because I always want to highlight how unique his salvation testimony is. None of us have had that experience. But even as Jesus met him, first he goes blind, then through the help of Ananias, he is led to Damascus. And is while he was in Damascus, the Lord, Jesus, said this about him. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. If you pause right there, that's sweet. What a job description. Be my apostle to go out and be an ambassador to all these foreign lands. Travel, see the world, share the gospel. Wonderful. Verse 16, though, continues. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul knew from day one, day three, in fairness, that he was called to be an apostle, but he was called to suffer. So you look ahead a couple of decades, he is suffering, but that's where he's able to find joy. Because his expectations were that Jesus is still the one leading me. He is still on the throne. He is still risen. And even though Paul switched sides, now he's on the receiving end of being persecuted as a Christian, he knew that God did not cease to call him and to work in him. Now, what does this look like by his description? In verse 25, he calls himself a minister according to the stewardship from God. Now, what is a steward? A steward is somebody that didn't come up with the idea. A steward is somebody that takes care of the wishes of his or her master. So let's use an example of like a restaurant. If you're a steward, let's say you're the server. So you get the dish from the restaurant 
famous chef, let's say, world class, you bring the dish to the table that they ordered. If you're the steward, your job is not to add some extra seasoning to the dish. Your job, even if the customer is to complain, is not to like, apologize on behalf of the chef as if you were he. Your job is simply to deliver the dish hot and piping from the kitchen to the table, and if they complain, so be it. If you need to take it back, you take it back to the chef. Your job is just to make sure that what you're holding gets to the destination, it's well taken care of, and then it's done. So when Paul says that he is a steward as a means of understanding the gospel, he makes it then really clear what is his role. His role is to declare a message from God's word. And in doing so, he's not supposed to change it, although he's supposed to make it understandable. He's not supposed to do something to make it better, although, again, he wants to point to it and highlight its beauty. His job is not to do what the chef is supposed to do. His job is to be a server and bring it to the table. And so the message that he has to say is extremely important because he wants it to be fully known and understood by all of the hearers of this message. There's a call then for all those who understand to repent, believe, and follow. But see, that needs to be made clear through his ministry. And so that's how he sees it. He's not the boss. He's not even the creative one. He's not the genius. He's the guy that's delivering a message to people that he's been called to and also people that need to hear it. So let's go on to the next slide where we can see more about Paul's message. And the way that this message is described is that it is a mystery. A mystery is not kind of like when you read a novel or watch a movie that's categorized as a mystery, like, oh, what happens now? A mystery in the Bible is where it is a truth that has been revealed or concealed for a time, but then God ultimately reveals it to the people he wants to know. And so we're going to see at this point, as Paul is being sent out with a message, that the message that he carries is one of an unveiling and a revealing of a spiritual truth that God has been cooking, if you don't take that the wrong way. A common saying is that the Old Testament is Christ concealed, and the New Testament is Christ revealed. And we see this then in the next two verses. Next slide, please. Starting from verse 26, Paul writes, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So who is this message, this mystery revealed to? Well, it is being revealed to a group of people that didn't know it before. So I think you can see this as being Old Testament saints. They're Jewish believers. There's something they need to know that then extends to the church in Colossae. Verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So then the gospel went forth, always reaching the Jews first. So then they would be the saints in that they've trusted in the Messiah and are set apart for God's purposes. Where this mystery becomes something that even is a blessing now to us, 
and that brings us in is that to these saints who are Jewish, guess what? The family just got bigger. It is not just your ethnic heritage, your religious system, your rituals that you were raised with or born in that makes you eligible to be saved or makes you savable through the Messiah. It is actually all peoples. Gentiles is all peoples who are not Jewish. And so this Messiah is meant for everybody. That's the mystery. Before in the Old Testament, it was not as clear, although the expectation of a coming Messiah is embedded in there. But not that it would be Jesus, that person who was then crucified and risen. That wasn't as clear, although you can see it when you read it now. In the New Testament, after Jesus rose from the dead and after the Holy Spirit came and the church started, it's clear. And so now the news goes out through the saints who are Jewish, expanding then to now the saints who can also be Gentile. This is pretty amazing. And we don't need to go into this, but I mean, the Jews, they just really hated the Gentiles. All of your insulting words would be something Gentile-related if you grew up Jewish. And so for this gospel to go out to all peoples, that's amazing. I mean, a mystery would almost be like a weird biblical you know, weird, strange word to say something that a whole group of people would detest. Oh man, that's an awful mystery. That's like the worst. But that is the beauty of the gospel. Here's then the gospel, as Paul is phrasing it here. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We find here a statement of what Paul has said just a little bit earlier. And even in the songs that we just sung this morning, of the beauty of this good news of the gospel. In that God came into the flesh as a human being, lived a perfect life for us, died a death that he did not deserve, but for us, and then was buried and risen on the third day to demonstrate that we are accepted, but then also that he has power over death. And that as Christ is, his people will be also. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul phrases it like this, For in him who is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, that's all of us, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, that's where the hope of glory comes from, because there is a future that not only are we able to see in light of God's glory, but there is also a future that in Christ that we're able to participate in because of what Jesus has done. There's a future hope that then anchors our present lives that is rooted in what Christ has done and what God has planned from eternity past. We find this in verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 1, that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son. That gives us true hope and one that is glorious. It allows us not only to be 
people made in God's image, but allows us to be sons and daughters of Abraham in Christ. This is great news. I want to read for you this verse from the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. This is verse 3. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Because of what Jesus has done, we can be saved and rescued. But because we are saved and rescued in Christ, we can have a hope towards the future. And that is one that is glorious. There is no greater gospel than the grace of God. Let's then go on to the next slide to see then Paul's motivation in sharing this message in his ministry. His goal is simply this, that the saints encompassing Jewish believers and Gentile believers would mature, would grow, and would arrive to deeper relationship with God and with each other. In verse 28, Paul says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. I love verse 28. I'm not sure if you caught this. But first of all, yes, there's him. So what are we proclaiming? What's the message? Christ. Crucified, buried, resurrected. Him. But he shifts the pronoun here, doesn't he? He says him. We proclaim. The we that he is sharing and suffering with, and by extension to us, Christ, we collectively proclaim. It is no longer just Paul's job. It is no longer just the privilege of the church in Colossae. It is for all believers in this hope that we can proclaim Jesus, that we can share in the mission of disciple-making, that we are able to point people to Christ. And not only all of us can be involved, but all of us are to speak to everyone. There's this clear emphasis on every single person that you can imagine that God brings to our past. So you're called to warn everyone, to teach everyone, both of these things done with wisdom, and then to present everyone mature in Christ. It is not just our narrow scope of who we're near, even just our own families and households or our closest friends or people that live near us, but the scope is everyone to do what Paul is doing himself to proclaim Christ. In verse 29, we find that his mission has caused him to continue to toil. This is where you can see that Paul's heart was a pastor's heart. You know, if he was to drop a message, write a letter, and be done, there's not that much toiling. There's not that much need for wrestling because he's finished. He toils because he knows that the gospel seed takes time to work itself through hard and stubborn hearts like what we have. 
that as God is rescuing and saving, as he is transferring and transforming, it doesn't happen overnight because we are a work in progress. That it's not just enough to be justified in that the hope of glory isn't just that, oh, I'm a Christian now, I'm done, but that the hope of glory is a growing into Christ-likeness that you and I are actually becoming more like Jesus. That takes time, and that is probably where the suffering would come from because we're not just wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling in high spiritual places with the sinfulness of people but then also of what Satan is doing in the world. And so he's struggling, as one translator would say, for toiling. And you're looking at him thinking, well, what are we supposed to learn from this? Why is he telling us this? Why can't he just keep this for himself? The reason why is because he wants to show us what it looks like when he trusts Christ's power to work in and through him. It's not about him even though he's sharing about himself. Let me give you an example. So basketball season starting. One of the things that you start hearing you know, pretty early on, especially if you're a Lakers fan, is you hear about all the different players, ins and outs, and how LeBron's old, right? But you also hear oftentimes about how, especially for the young players, I think they're very impressed by this, that he's the first guy in the gym, that he works the hardest, the longest, and that he's the one that's probably pushing back a little bit on the minutes restrictions that people say he should have. Now, at the end of the day, do you think that LeBron, who has won and accomplished everything you probably could accomplish in a career, is wanting to draw more attention to him? I mean, he'll get it. Don't get me wrong. He'll get the accolades. But do you think that he is telling people or showing people these things for him? No, because he can't win if it's just him. He's doing these things and showing these things and role modeling this life of toil and hardship and working hard. Why? Because it reminds his teammates and maybe to some extent the fans that this is what it takes to win. That this is what it takes to lead. This is what it takes to accomplish your goal. That's what Paul's doing here. After all, he is stuck under arrest. There's not much he can do, but as he's pointing out his suffering, the attention's not on him. He is trying to encourage the Colossians to remind them that, you know what? This is the life. Suffering is the life of following Christ. Wrestling is what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus. Being in toil and struggling is what Christ has called us to. Don't forget that. I'm in there with you. For this I toil. So we see that Paul has his ministry. He has his message centered in Christ and what he's done. And his motivation is to bring followers of Jesus to maturity. Now, how does this reflect then how he lives? Let me share with you a quote by pastor and author Richard Chin from down south. Or down under, actually, not just down south. He says this that there is a strategy that Paul is going with here. He says that this is the strategy that Paul is using. The prayerful proclamation of Jesus to all the nations through suffering. Let me say that again. The prayerful proclamation of Jesus to all the nations 
through suffering. You then see Paul struggling and suffering, but then you come to understand, wait, what he is doing and and putting up for people to see and pointing people to, this is actually what he believes in, not only in what fulfills his calling and faithfulness to Christ, but then also what will make the gospel beautiful. That is what will allow people to see that when the messenger's life looks like this, there is something meaty and substantial about what he is preaching. Let's go to the big idea. Next page. So here's the big idea. The word of God proclaims Christ in you, the hope of glory, which brings about maturity through perseverance. I'll say that again. The word of God proclaims Christ in you, the hope of glory, which brings about maturity through perseverance. And if I could share just one more note about this occasion of pastor's appreciation, I hope that you can see that none of us are doing what we're doing, whether in front or not in front, because we know more, are eloquent, or have gone through more suffering than many of you. We have much to learn from all of you in life. But it's because, like Paul, we are called to be stewards of God's word in order to be shepherds of God's people, which then equips and enables us to preach the gospel to everyone until they come to the maturity of the faith in Christ. So we want to be more like Paul too, but not just for the sake of how he looked externally, but we want to be reminded of why he did what he did internally and always aware and cognizant and paying attention to how it is that the central message that we are called to proclaim is the forgiveness and the redemption that we can have through Christ's death and resurrection. So if there's any ways in which you could pray for us at all, please pray for that, that we stay on message, that we are faithful in mission, and that we are aiming through ministry to proclaim Christ above all things. Let's go to the last slide. I did want to share a couple of thoughts with you for application. So when you see what Paul is describing here, it begins with the spiritual truth, Christ in you. That in and of itself is actually very amazing because there are many reasons for which Christ would not want to be in us, especially in our sinfulness. But there's a beauty of Christ choosing to dwell with his people, which you always see God wanting to do, whether it's in the wilderness or with the temple or... There's always a desire that God has to be in the midst of his people, not separate, but in his holiness, he is wanting to still be with us as broken and flawed sinners. This then is the mystery that the God who made us and who knows our sin and our rebellion through his death and resurrection is able to live within us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. What is the distinction there that I want to make? Well, sometimes we have Christ with us. Sometimes we have Christ near us. Sometimes we have Christ around us, but we don't have Christ in us. Being near Christ, being adjacent to Jesus, does not make one for whom Christ is living within. It always begins 
with our call to follow him. That Jesus, when he was calling disciples to himself, called them to drop what they were doing and just pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't sugarcoat it. But that's where we need to begin. And as some of us are sitting here, maybe we've been in church for years. Maybe we've been in and out of the presence and the connections with other Christians for decades, but we've never trusted in Christ for ourselves. Christ in you, the hope of glory, not Christ near you, as if he could rub off some kind of aura on you. But then here's the thing, too. For many of us, when we think of this idea of the hope of glory, we kind of want to put that on the shelf. We think, you know what? When I'm older, when I've accomplished everything that I want to accomplish, when I've finished, graduated out of the college I want to go to, become the vocation and the expert that I strive to be, when I've had my family, you know, when I've had my children, when they're having children, when I'm retired, then I will look with a forward gaze towards eternity and the hope of glory. But actually, if you think about it, that hope needs to be anchored in your lives right now. Because all of us live lives that will probably all end before we plan or desire or have accomplished everything we've wanted to do. See, the hope of glory is the only true hope in that when God makes all things new, when he is surrounded by his worshipers, when we are in the new creation, when sin is no more, when our sinfulness is no longer what separates us from our Savior, when we are face-to-face with God and with one another, that is what we were saved for. And so, as I'm looking out to the congregation today, if you're a youth or a collegian, I want to encourage you today to look at your life just, just a little bit with a longer view than this school year, than the next season, than the next group of friends you're going to have, or the next place that you can visit. I want you to think about how life could matter forever. I know that's not a really simple thought to hold on to, or even a natural thought, because you just want to you know, experience and do the things that you want to do now. I get it. But think further, because the hope of glory transcends your daily worries. And a lot of times I think our daily worries is what keeps us away from God and from other people, because we're so concerned about what people think about us and how we are framed to others in our image today that we forget how God sees us for an eternity if we belong to him. Trust Jesus one day at a time as the source of true joy in your life. It begins there, and then he will lead and form your heart. And for young adults who are sometimes in a season of wandering and back and forth in transition, I encourage you guys to actually put down some anchors and pursue relationships with your church family. You're living in a time of freedom. You get to do many things. You get to want many things and see many things. But you got to anchor down with a shared group of people towards that hope of glory. Interestingly enough, I think deep down inside that's what you're looking for. 
not just for the newest experience. You're looking to be known and to be loved. The church family is where you can begin in forming those lasting relationships in Christian community. For families with children, young or old, it doesn't matter. I want to exhort you guys to prepare your children for suffering. I know, that's not exactly what's going to sell out a conference, right? Or that's not the seminar you sign up for. How do I prepare my kids for suffering? But if you're pointing them to Jesus, this is what you're called to prepare them for. And that's not to say that their safety and comfort and provision is not important. But if you want to point them to Jesus, you got to make room for them to suffer. It breaks your heart first, and God knows this. But you got to think of how their lives are more than just about you giving them everything that they want and have, especially if they're Christians, so that they can in their hearts and minds think, I don't need God. I don't need the church. I don't need to repent. They need Jesus. Point them to Jesus, and as you're able with God's strength and wisdom, prepare them for suffering. Because then when they suffer, which I guarantee you they will because of sin in this world, you're there with them and you're cheering for them, pointing them to Jesus, loving them in a way that they really need and encouraging them towards the hope of glory rather than just putting Band-Aids on a broken arm. You want them to endure. You want them to persevere. Prepare your children for suffering. And that oftentimes begins with us. They will see how we deal with suffering. We need to be ready to be wronged, misunderstood, taken advantage of, stepped on for our faith. That's horrible. Nobody wants that. But may we rejoice in the privileges that God gives to us to point our kids to Christ. And finally, for those of you in 50 plus as you toil and struggle, and maybe some of you vocationally are kind of seeing that behind you of toiling and struggle, I want to encourage you guys to keep pursuing that legacy that lasts forever. You know, that hope of glory, it's closer to you. We sang a verse just now that speaks of faith becoming sight. That's difficult to fathom and to swallow, but it's also the biblical promise for our joy. So I pray that each of you will struggle and toil still for what will endure and last forever. And for all of us then, what we want is when our eyes are set on the hope of glory, when our hearts and our desires are anchored in a future hope, then we can live the present life with persevering joy. And that's what he see in Paul's life in the midst of suffering, but that's also what you see him demonstrating and preaching because Christ is the best. Christ is not a slave master. Christ is the best. He is the world-class chef. He is the best, and it is worthy to be his steward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today, and I want to pray, Lord, that you would just teach us how great is your love for us Help us, God, to just draw near to you, not because we're so great, but because you're so great. Help us, God, to truly pursue a closer relationship with Christ, that Christ may be in us so that we may bend our lives and our gaze towards a future hope of glory. 
God, thank you for being not only a promise maker, but a promise keeper. And I pray, Father, that you would help each of us where we are at today to continue on with persevering joy. May we worship you with our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.